Hey friends, and welcome to part 5 of our series on the life and history of Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly. This is the finale. It took five episodes spanning over two months to tell his story. This episode is longer than I intended for it to be, but it was either due one long finale or two more shorter episodes. So I decided to give you the rest of Leadbelly's story in one big finale. We've talked about a lot during this series. We've talked about his troubled childhood, which began in 1888. Some sources say 1889. We learned about his descent into a violent way of life. His first attempted murder was at 16. He was regularly involved in fights and instances of domestic violence. He escaped prison twice, murdered his friend over a woman that was not his wife. He did some time in some of the most notorious prisons in the South, including the infamous Angola, which some claim is the bloodiest prison in U.S. history. And he was a musical genius. Countless musicians have covered his songs, and his influence on modern music has lasted well over a century. It hasn't been an easy story to tell. Separating his music from the violent things he did isn't always possible, and it's hard to empathize with someone who did some of the things he admitted to. But I hope I've helped to uncover the deeper story that underlies those aspects of his life. History isn't always easy to hear, but it should always be remembered. So let's get to remembering it. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Last time we left Leadbelly just after he had been released from Angola, the Louisiana State Penitentiary. He had been released a year and a half early due to his good behavior and a shortage of funding. The Great Depression hit the U.S. prison systems hard, and many prisoners who had shown good behavior were released early for financial reasons. His release was conditional, subject to something called hog law which in the time of Leadbelly meant that if he were to find himself incarcerated in Louisiana again, he would have to serve out the rest of his old sentence on top of his new one. I'm sure this was in the back of his mind, as the now 46-year-old walked out of Angola on August 1st, 1934, four and a half years into his six-year minimum sentence. We talked last time about how his release from Angola, even today, is misunderstood. Legend says the governor released him early because of his music. I've seen poorly cited or totally non-cited sources on the internet saying the governor heard him singing Goodnight Irene or his Governor O.K. Allen song, and he was so impressed that Huddy was released early. We have plenty of evidence, some of which I shared in the last episode, that confirms his release from Angola was routine. Him being released because of his talent is a more interesting story, but it's simply not true in this instance. You could definitely make the case that Governor Pat Neff had released him early from the Imperial State Prison Farm, known as Sugarland Prison, in Texas because of his music several years before, but the legend about Angola from the official sources we have shows that his release was routine. 
I won't go into a long recap of his entire life story in this episode, because 46 years of an epically complicated life lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries has already taken me hours to tell. So we're going to pick up right where we left off last time, with a free and hopeful Huddy walking away from one of the country's most brutal prisons. When Leadbelly left Angola, home would have meant something different to him than when he had been sentenced, because while he was in prison, his mother had died. This means he lost both parents while he had been in prison. His father had passed first while he'd been at Sugarland, his mother years later while he was in Angola. He had a few ideas about what he would do after his release. While still in prison, he had written to John Lomax asking for employment. If you remember from the last episode, John and his son Alan Lomax had been traveling around the South in search of old, traditional folk and work songs for the Library of Congress. They had so loved Leadbelly's songs when they first recorded him at Angola that they ended up making a special second trip just to record him again. As far as we know, the Lomaxes were the first people to ever record Leadbelly. A lot of Leadbelly folklore says he met up with John Lomax for employment immediately after his release, but that's not quite how it happened. Huddy wrote to John on July 20th, a week and a half before his release. He asked for a job, a ticket to anywhere John would be willing to meet him, and some money. After not receiving a reply, he wrote John again on August 10th, 10 days after his release, and John actually wrote him back, but his letters were returned by the post office, so Leadbelly never got them. In the meantime, Leadbelly thought about meeting his daughter, Arthur May, in Dallas. Arthur May was his first surviving child. His girlfriend had given birth to her while he was around 16 or 17 years old, but he had denied he was the father until years later. Now, Arthur was in her 30s and had written to Huddy while he was incarcerated at Angola. And now in his 40s, Huddy finally showed an interest in this daughter he had previously denied as his own. She was in Dallas, and either he decided not to go stay with her in the end, or he went for a couple of weeks and then left. The sources aren't solid on exactly what happened. But we know that he ended up next in Shreveport, Louisiana, primarily because that's where a woman named Martha Promise lived. Martha had known Huddy for years, and she knew of his bad reputation, but she was still attracted to him. He was much older than she was, 18 years older, but the two kindled a relationship and it would prove later to be the most important one of Huddy's lifetime. They had begun seeing each other before Huddy had been sent to Angola, and now that he was out, he decided to return to her. Martha was described as patient, quiet, hardworking, and religious. She could sing, too. She sang in the Shreveport Silverleaf Jubilee Choir. When Huddy met up with her in Shreveport, she was making $4 a week washing clothes. Jobs at the time were scarce, and two adults couldn't survive well on $4 a week. Huddy was quickly becoming desperate for work, and on September 4th, Huddy wrote to John Lomax once again, asking for a job. Huddy addressed John as boss man, and said he would drive his car for him, wash his clothes, cook his meals, and quote, be his servant. If that makes you cringe a little bit, you're not alone. 
Looking at this whole thing through a 21st century lens is unsettling. And the white employer-boss-man-black-employee-servant relationship these two would have is uncomfortable to research and to learn about. But these uncomfortable moments in history are excellent opportunities to discuss the inequalities that black Americans were facing. I really doubt Huddy wanted to do menial work for Lomax, but as a black ex-con, he didn't have that many options or opportunities, and music wasn't helping pay the bills. A fourth letter to Lomax followed, and this time, Lomax's response finally reached Leadbelly. It was a job offer, and Lomax told Huddy to meet him at the Plaza Hotel in Marshall, Texas on September 22, 1934, which he did. Lomax was embarking on another quest for music for the Library of Congress. This time, he was heading to the prisons of Arkansas, looking for more songs to record. His son Alan had fallen ill and was unable to accompany his father this time. The recording equipment with the recorder and discs all weighed about 500 pounds, and the 67-year-old Lomax couldn't embark on such a journey alone. Besides being a good mechanic and an able body, Lomax believed Leadbelly would be a good liaison between him and the prisoners they would meet on their journey. By the way, much of this information is coming from the book The Life and Legend of Leadbelly by Charles Wolfe and Kip Lornell. I've been plugging that book in every single episode of this series because it is the most in-depth and well-researched account of Leadbelly's life out there. So check it out if you like this series. It's cited right at the top in the show notes. When Huddy met Lomax at the Plaza Hotel, John bluntly asked him if he was carrying any weapons. Huddy told him all he had was a knife and showed it to John. It was sharp and had a long blade. This startled John, who was wary of embarking alone on a long journey with an ex-con who had a bad reputation and multiple prison sentences. John told Huddy, quote, Whenever you decide that you are going to take my money and car, you won't have to use this knife on me. Just tell me what you want and I'll give it to you without a struggle, unquote. John didn't say if you take it, he said when. This illustrates the large racial and social divide that loomed between Lomax and Leadbelly. This chasm between them was something they would never be able to totally overcome. More on that later. Leadbelly was startled by John's blunt statement and reassured him, saying that he was Lomax's man and that he would never even have to tie his own shoes again if he didn't want to. Again, cringe. Lomax couldn't pay Huddy much, only about a dollar or so a day. Most of the trip's expenses were coming out of his own pockets, and those pockets were not deep. But he would pay for Huddy's food and lodging. Lomax had remarried three years after the death of his wife Bess in 1931. He wrote to Ruby, his new wife, and told her to send a suitcase and some clothes for Huddy, including a black suit. If you remember from the last episode, John had taken a recording of Huddy's to the governor, which Huddy thought would garner his release from prison. We know Huddy's release was routine, but he may have believed Lomax was the one who had ensured that release. I say that because in this letter to his wife, John told her, quote, Ledbetter is here and we are off. Don't be uneasy. He thinks I freed him. He will probably be of much help, unquote. If Huddy really believed that John had secured his pardon, 
then John certainly was going to let him continue believing it, even if he knew it wasn't true. That seems a little crappy and is a foreshadowing of what was to come. They hit the road with Leadbelly driving. Lodging wasn't always easy to find for both of them, nor were places to eat. Everything at this time was segregated, so John and Huddy had to eat and sleep in completely different places. In Gould, Arkansas, at the Cummins Prison Farm, Huddy proved to be a valuable asset. The two worked 16-hour days. John was hoping to interview around 800 inmates, though only around 20 songs ended up being recorded. Huddy played for the prisoners, and John wrote that they were standing on one another's shoulders to watch him. The card and dice game stopped, and the entire prison camp was silent, all but for the voice of Huddy and the resonance of the 12-string guitar as he played. While in Gould at the prison farm, Huddy learned a new song. It was called Rock Island Line. It was an old song, probably from around 1900, when the Rock Island Line Company had purchased the rights to run a railroad cutting through Arkansas. As he often did when he heard a song he liked, Huddy put his own spin on it and added it to his repertoire. It eventually became one of his most popular songs. He learned it on this first trip with Lomax. And here it is. This is Leadbelly's version of Rock Island Line. This is Rock Island Line. For oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. For oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a road to ride. For oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. If you want to ride, you got to ride it like you're fine to get your ticket and standing on the Rock Island Line. Jesus died to save our sins. Glory to God, we're going to meet him again. For oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. For oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a road to ride. For oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. If you want us to ride, you got to ride it like you finally get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. A, B, C, double X, Y, Z. Yes, they're in the cupboard, but they don't see me. Oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. Oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a road to ride. Oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. If you want us to ride, you got to ride it like you finally get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. I may be right and I may be wrong. Do you want to miss me when I'm gone? Oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. Oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a road to ride. Oh, the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. If you want no doubt Huddy learned not just this, but many songs on his travels with Lomax. It was an opportunity for him to hear songs isolated in prison farms that hadn't reached him in the prisons of Texas or Louisiana. After this trip, Huddy went back to Shreveport to see Martha. He had missed her while he was away and was eager to show her how good he looked in his new suit. Lomax hadn't planned on stopping in Shreveport, but acquiesced to a week-long detour before the two headed out once again, this time headed for Alabama. Huddy saw the ocean for the first time when they drove along the Gulf of Mexico. Not realizing what it was at first, he told Lomax it was the biggest river he had ever seen. 
Huddy proved to be a good employee much of the time. He worked hard doing everything from making coffee to finding street musicians willing to record for Lomax. But there were times when things did not go well. Leadbelly would disappear at night, often not coming back to meet Lomax until morning. Once in Montgomery, Leadbelly didn't show up to work at all. Lomax traveled to a nearby prison himself and conducted recordings, having no idea where Leadbelly was. When he returned, he found him at the hotel. Huddy had stayed out all night. Lomax was furious and lectured Huddy, the frustrations of the trip so far boiling to the surface. Huddy showed remorse and asked for a second chance. Lomax, moved by his apology, agreed. But it wasn't long before tension erupted again. While he was driving a few days later, Huddy ran a red light in downtown Montgomery. Lomax, alarmed, told Huddy to stop the car and asked him what he was doing. Leadbelly replied that Lomax had told him to run the light. Lomax, having been there, knew this was not true and once again lost his temper. It seems like there was a fragility about their relationship. This was probably for a few reasons. Social, cultural, and racial divides, misunderstandings, different expectations about the job, and personality clashes all seemed to play a part. Lomax told Huddy to take his guitar and get out of the car. He did, and disappeared into the crowd. Lomax drove away, leaving Huddy behind. It didn't take Lomax long to regret his outburst. He started to wonder if there really had been some sort of miscommunication about the red light. But Huddy didn't return to the hotel, and Lomax had no idea where to start looking for him. Three days passed, and Lomax figured their relationship had come to an abrupt and unfortunate end. But just as Lomax was about to leave town, he spotted Leadbelly while at the post office. He called him over and apologized, having spent the last three days wishing he hadn't lost his temper. He asked Leadbelly if he would still be interested in working for him. Leadbelly said he would, and the two loaded up his guitar and headed out to find more music in more prison farms. At the end of the trip, the two must have parted on good terms, because Lomax had already asked Huddy if he would be interested in accompanying him on a second trip, which would include a trip to more prisons as well as a lecture in Philadelphia. The Modern Language Association had invited John Lomax to speak at their annual conference. Both John and Alan Lomax had presented at their prior annual meeting in St. Louis, and it had been extremely successful. When Alan had played some of their field recordings, it was the first time the association had heard any version of black vernacular music, and apparently it caused quite the stir in 1933. This time, Lomax asked if he could bring Leadbelly with him so the singer could perform for the association. Townsend Scudder III wrote him back on behalf of the association and said they were very much looking forward to having his, quote, talented aborigine sing for their guests. That was a real thing, he said. In the meantime, Leadbelly went back to Shreveport and Martha while he waited for their next trip. John's son, Alan, was finally recovering from his illness and would be joining them on the road. And in December, the three of them, Huddy, John, and Alan, set off. Leadbelly didn't know it at the time, but this would be the beginning of a whole new chapter in his life one that would finally be centered around his music. 
Three people crammed into a Plymouth with hundreds of pounds of recording equipment did not make for a very comfortable ride, but they made do. The back of the car had been modified so someone could sit in the back seat next to the recording gear. John and Alan Lomax drove to Shreveport, where Huddy took over the driving, and he waved goodbye to Martha, left standing beside her laundry. A whole new adventure was just beginning. All of the hardships John and Huddy had experienced on their first trip were greatly diminished on the second, at least at first. Perhaps they were learning how to navigate their relationship. Perhaps having the young, energetic Alan with them helped dissipate any tension. Alan and Huddy had a good rapport. Huddy even enjoyed giving the young, eager Alan guitar lessons as they made their way north. Before making it to the MLA meeting, the three would drive through Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia, where they would make stops at prisons for more recordings. The trip was not without its complications. Alan fell ill for a bit, but recovered. Huddy began to get a nasty toothache. One afternoon in South Carolina, they had to leave Huddy at the prison gates with the car. When they came back, the car was splattered with blood. Huddy had been trying to pull out his bad molar with a pair of pliers. <laughs> Alan found a dentist who was able to fix the tooth, and the three were on their way again. They stopped in Washington, D.C. on Christmas Eve. John met up with some old friends. The Lomaxes took Huddy to the zoo. Huddy gave Alan some more guitar lessons, and on Christmas morning, they opened gifts. Huddy said they were the first Christmas presents he'd had in five years. The day after Christmas, they drove the rest of the way to Philadelphia. John Lomax and his work was gaining attention, and it wasn't long before reporters were hounding Leadbelly for interviews. The word about Leadbelly's coming appearance at the MLA conference had already spread, and so had some of the stories surrounding his past. His legend had officially started to grow. Headlines intended to sell a sensational story were used to capture the attention of readers. Headlines like this one from the Philadelphia Independent. Two-time Dixie murderer sings way to freedom. The articles and reporters would keep coming, many of them eager to exaggerate Huddy's past. Eventually, radio interviews would follow, and Huddy couldn't have known just how big of a spotlight he was about to find himself in. The MLA, or Modern Language Association, was and still is the largest organization of scholars of literature and language in the U.S., and the conference in 1934 was promising to be a big one. According to MLA's own statistics, the year before, at the 1933 conference, the attendance had been 563 people. This year, that would increase dramatically to 1,028. There were three musical acts in all. There was a set of Elizabethan airs being sung. That would have sounded like something you'd hear in a tavern in Skyrim, or a drafty castle on the English countryside. Following that was a set of sing-along sea shanties. That would have sounded like something you'd hear on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney World. Then there was Leadbelly, and the crowd went crazy for him. He passed around his hat like he always did when he played, but this time when it came back, it wasn't full of pennies and nickels, 
but dollar bills and silver coins. There were two nights of performances and lectures. On the first night, the program listed Lomax's lecture and Leadbelly's performance as, quote, Negro songs and ballads presented by John Lomax and Alan Lomax with the assistance of a Negro minstrel from Louisiana. Not great representation there. The second night, they changed it to comments on Negro folk songs, illustrated with voice and guitar by Negro convict Leadbelly of Louisiana. At least they used his name in that one. After the conference, the three headed to New York for more lectures and performances. By all accounts, Leadbelly was very excited about going to New York. He said it was like entering the capital of all the states in the world. Lodging was once again difficult to arrange for everyone because New York had implemented Jim Crow laws and everything was segregated. Leadbelly and the Lomaxes were prohibited by law from eating or sleeping in the same places. Leadbelly played his music whenever the Lomaxes gave one of their talks on musical preservation. He played mostly for educators, college professors, social elites, and scholars, all white audiences. Lomax would refuse to book a lecture or show where Huddy was not allowed to pass his hat at the end. John was still paying out of pocket for most of the trip, and the money Leadbelly made at these shows was Leadbelly's main source of income. In fact, it was a big source of income. It was the most money Leadbelly had ever made in his life. And considering he had been sweltering in a Louisiana jail just five months before, you could definitely call his rise in popularity a whirlwind. Success was coming fast, and it started going to Leadbelly's head. He would go out all night, spend his money, drink, womanize, and not return until morning. This would cause him to miss important interviews and appointments John had scheduled for him. One morning, Huddy stumbled in drunk, too drunk to be interviewed by the reporter from the Herald Tribune. Lomax took Leadbelly to bed so he could sleep off his intoxication and carried out the interview on his own. This came to mixed results. The article is arguably the one that brought Leadbelly national attention and helped to skyrocket his popularity. But it was also a lesson for Lomax on how much the media was willing to exaggerate and would highlight not Leadbelly's music, but his violent past. The article was titled, Sweet Singer of the Swamplands, Here to Do a Few Tunes Between Homicides. The article described him as a, quote, powerful, knife-toting Negro. It also claimed he had been released from prison twice for his music. We know that did happen when he was released in Texas, but again, we know that is not the reason he was released from Angola. I know I mentioned that a lot in this series, but that's because I couldn't even tell you how many times I saw that being reported online as fact on sites that were not good sources of information. The internet has made information and knowledge more accessible than ever before in all of human history, which is fantastic. But it's so important to make sure the information you're getting is cited, verifiable, and sourced from viable research or records. There is still so much Leadbelly folklore out there swimming in myth, partly because of articles like this one from the Herald Tribune that sensationalized his story and tried to fit it into a racist dialogue. The article also claimed that when Leadbelly came to John for work, he merely showed up and said, Boss, here I is. Boss, I came here to be your man. I belong to you. 
That really smacks of slavery insinuations. Lomax learned just how much people would exploit Huddy's story, and he also learned that audiences were interested just as much in his sensational past as they were in his music, if not more. That's something Lomax would exploit himself later. Despite his success with white audiences, which was only growing, he was not as popular with black audiences. The shows he played in Harlem, including one at the famous Apollo Theater, were not successful. Wolf and Lornell in their book explained that Huddy was more of a folk musician than anything else, his repertoire being an eclectic mix of over 500 songs, some of which he wrote, some of which were old standards he put his own spin on. Black audiences at the time were interested in musicians like Cab Calloway that had big jazzy swing-sounding numbers, further removed from the simpler-sounding ballads that were popular a generation before. Leadbelly was a musical genius, but he had an older sound, one that was more out of fashion with the now younger audiences. Blues and folk were out, big catchy sounds were in. His years in prison had kept him from learning the newer music found in places like Harlem, and while his isolation is what gave us his sound, it also kept him from receiving more widespread attention later with black audiences. He would continue to grow in popularity, but with predominantly white audiences interested in folk and blues. This must have caused frustration for Huddy, a frustration that only amplified the growing stresses fracturing his relationship with John Lomax. The mentality John seemed to have with Huddy is complicated. He felt morally responsible for him and seemed to not believe Huddy could take care of himself. John was losing control of Huddy, who was going out regularly and returning whenever he wanted, oftentimes intoxicated. John wanted to control Huddy's behavior, and it's almost like he wanted a parental control over someone he viewed as childlike. But Huddy was not a child, he was a grown man, freely able to make his own decisions. John wanted an obedient Huddy that he could control. Huddy didn't want to be controlled, or made to feel like he had to obey John. I see that John may have had the best intentions for Huddy here, and later, but this almost master-servant relationship he seemed to want was inappropriate, in my mind. I may be misinterpreting things, I freely admit that. My interpretations on this are many decades and social movements away from the actual situation. But it's difficult to justify the control John wanted to have over Huddy, or the way he would exploit him later. There's no question that the musical preservation done by both of the Lomaxes was incredibly important and powerful. We have thousands and thousands of songs that have been preserved because of them. Their contribution to music history is incalculable. It's just one of those times when it's hard looking backwards through a modern lens. But the way Huddy was treated, and you'll get more on this later too, was not coming from a mindset of equality. Huddy was making money now, though he wasn't keeping it long. At this point, John Lomax was aware of Huddy's success and his potential, and was convinced that Huddy would be able to find success on his own, not just on lecture circuits. Offstage, Lomax was doing all the booking, handling all the money, and finding himself more and more often having to act as a buffer between Leadbelly and dubious offers being thrown at him from people eager to take advantage of this singer, who was growing in popularity but still naive about the music business. 
The strain was clearly wearing on the 68-year-old Lomax. He wrote to his wife, quote, Up to now, this experiment has been sort of a nightmare. I hate the hard faces of the gold hunters. I despise the female cranks and celebrity hunters, unquote. Leadbelly was having the time of his life, but Lomax was starting to crack under the strain. On January 5th, John presented Huddy with a contract. John wanted to be his exclusive manager, personal representative, and advisor. John thought this would protect Huddy from more unscrupulous management offers, and at first it seemed like a fair deal, but it quickly became what seems like a very unequal partnership. The contract was a five-year agreement. Lomax would handle all the bookings and money. All Leadbelly would need to do was perform. In the agreement, Huddy was not allowed to play a show without John's consent, and John would take 50% of all Huddy's earnings. Today, that seems outrageous, but back then, a 40-50% to 50% split was not unusual. What is unusual is that a few weeks later, a supplement was added to the contract, adding John's son Alan in as a second manager and cutting him in for a percentage. All in all, the Lomaxes would take two-thirds of anything that Leadbelly made. That was an unusually high split, and I wonder if the Lomaxes were offering him any better a deal than one of the more unscrupulous gold diggers described by John would have. Leadbelly signed without hesitation. He trusted the Lomaxes and had no experience with business or contracts and probably thought it was a fair deal. This later would become a huge issue. John and Alan went to work, booking shows, radio programs, record deals, and anything they could square away. John was offered a deal for two books with Macmillan Publishing, one detailing his work on song collection, the other on Leadbelly. The segregation in the city proved to be too much of a hassle, and the three of them left the city, heading for the countryside. Two of Lomax's acquaintances, two women named Mary Barnacle and Margaret Conklin, shared a 200-year-old New England summer home in Wilton, Connecticut, and told Huddy and the Lomaxes they could stay there rent-free for the rest of the winter. This would alleviate the stress of having to find separate places to stay, and would give John some reprieve to write, and would get Leadbelly away from the bars in Harlem. Lomax arranged for Martha, Huddy's girlfriend, to join them. No doubt he wanted Leadbelly to be able to have his partner with him, but John also had his own reasons for wanting Martha there with them. He thought Martha would help keep Leadbelly on track, and he also wanted her to act as a cook and a maid for them. Again, cringe. Martha was hesitant to go. She would have to quit her job and leave her home to meet Huddy, but she eventually agreed. Huddy told her if she would come, he would marry her as soon as she arrived, a promise he kept. If you remember, Huddy was still possibly technically married to Lethe, his first wife, as no divorce papers were ever signed that anyone has been able to find. But on January 20th, Martha and Huddy were married. The media showed up, eager for the story. John gave Martha away, and Alan acted as the best man. Leadbelly looked sharp in a cinnamon double-breasted suit with red stripes and white formal gloves. Martha wore a striped black silk frock. She laughed later about how she had a hard time finding gloves that could fit Huddy's hands. 
And just like that, Huddy was again a married man. This time, it would last. Huddy, in his late 40s now, had finally settled down just enough to find the love of his life. While at the Connecticut house, John secured a record deal for Lead Belly with the American Record Company, or ARC. He'd go into the city and record a total of 40 songs, 10 each day. This was back when auto-tune didn't exist. Artists were expected to record in one take, with few opportunities for retakes, and when a mistake couldn't just be edited out. Lead Belly reportedly knew about 500 songs, ARC wanted him to record his blues songs, the Lomaxes wanted his traditional songs represented. We don't know what Huddy preferred, but in the end, ARC won out, and the records featured more blues than the traditional folk songs Lead Belly was singing for his crowds. ARC believed the blues was what would sell. Turns out they were wrong, and the records sold less than average for the day. Though now, those ARC recordings of Leadbelly's are sought after by collectors everywhere. ARC had marketed Leadbelly's records as race records, something we went over in the second episode of this series. But the songs they had him record were a bit behind the times in terms of what was popular. They tried marketing him again, recording new blues songs, but those tanked as well. Lomax continued to record him too. Leadbelly often played one song several different ways, and Lomax would try and record two or three versions of everything in order to preserve each version. Lomax booked Huddy a film, too. The March of Time radio program, created by Time Magazine's Fred Smith, was a radio show specializing in news, documentaries, and dramatizations. Leadbelly had impressed them when he performed on the show, another booking by Lomax, and now they were interested in making his story into a short film. It was dramatized, emphasizing his violent past. He was even made to wear prison stripes in most of it. It's on YouTube now, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Leadbelly plays himself. It's only a few minutes, and it's kind of frustrating to watch. It's full of completely outdated stereotypes. It shows Leadbelly basically begging John Lomax to free him, it portrays him as a desperate and helpless man who desperately needs to be saved by John Lomax. It says, quote, John Lomax does take the Louisiana Negro to be his man. Then it ends with Leadbelly singing Goodnight Irene. It's worth a watch because you get to actually see Leadbelly, and it also gives you a glimpse into the kind of role the media was trying to file him into. Meanwhile, the gigs kept coming. They usually paid 50 to 100 bucks, plus whatever Leadbelly made when he passed his hat at the end of the night. But now, Leadbelly didn't get to keep his hat money. All of the money they made went to Lomax, and he gave Huddy an allowance as well as paid for his expenses, carefully subtracting both of those out of Huddy's share of the profits. Things were quickly becoming strained. Both Leadbelly and John were getting frustrated. John wrote in a letter to his wife, trying to sum up Leadbelly. He called him, quote, "...an amazing mixture of craft, guile, cunning, deceit, ingratitude, suspicion, fawning, hypocrisy, and at times charming companion and entertainer." Unquote. 
But John didn't exactly have a straight finger to point here. You could very much argue he was taking advantage of Leadbelly. He was totally in control of expenses. Lomax took two-thirds of his earnings. Plus, John was writing a book about Leadbelly, and he was not planning on sharing the profits, even though it would be a book about the life of Huddy, as well as catalog many of his songs. John made Leadbelly wear old prison clothes when he performed to play off of the homicidal minstrel headlines. He made Huddy wear a bandana to cover his neck scar, too. Huddy hated all of this. Huddy loved dressing well. If you remember from the first episode, this was a guy that went out to work in the fields in pressed and starched overalls and shined black shoes every day. Their relationship began to crumble. They went on a tour through New England, playing shows Lomax had booked. Leadbelly would go out all night. Lomax would lecture him, saying he was being irresponsible. Leadbelly would ask for his earnings. Lomax would not give it to him. After the tour, Lomax wrote to his wife about Huddy, saying, quote, I shall always regret that I have wasted my time on a person whom gratitude or appreciation can find no place, unquote. Lomax clearly thought he had a right to control the things Huddy did with his time and his money. Lomax withheld Huddy's pay because he didn't trust him with it. That was not part of their contract, and I totally get Leadbelly's frustration here. Lomax thought he was protecting Huddy from himself, and he didn't understand why that would be inappropriate, why it was racist, or why Huddy wasn't grateful for it. John seemed to think it was his right to make money off of Leadbelly more than it was Leadbelly's right to make money off of himself. Alan had a much better relationship with Huddy than his father did, and when John wrote to his son saying he was going to end their partnership, Alan was reportedly pretty gutted over it. Alan admired Leadbelly, and they would later find their way back to one another. But the older, more conservative John, who clearly had a different opinion of Huddy than his son did, couldn't wait to part ways. When they returned from the tour and John told Leadbelly he and Martha would have to go back to Shreveport, Huddy was relieved and started packing within 10 minutes. Their relationship was over, and although it had strained them both, they had accomplished a great deal together. They had put folk music in the spotlight, made it national news, brought Leadbelly's music to the surface. It had been an important piece of American music history, but it had played itself out. The time of Leadbelly and John Lomax was over and it was time for a new chapter in Leadbelly's life to begin. Although Leadbelly and John had parted ways, it wasn't a clean cut. The whole thing went off kind of like a bad divorce. During those months in New York, Huddy and Lomax made, according to John's books, about $1,550. Because of the huge chunk of those earnings the Lomaxes took, Huddy only walked away with $298.94. Lomax made sure to keep track of everything Leadbelly bought, and he took it out of his final share. Even the 25 cents John had given Martha for Huddy's wedding gloves. At the train station before he and Martha left for Shreveport, John gave Huddy three $50 checks, then gave him the rest of his earnings in cash. Later, when Huddy went to the bank to cash those checks, he found out Lomax had dated them each a month apart, 
meaning Huddy could only cash one of them a month for the next three months. Lomax did this because he said it was the only way Huddy would preserve any of the money he made. He did not think Huddy was responsible enough to handle his own money. This was not only a slap in the face to Huddy, who had been made to clean and cook and do laundry with his wife for Lomax between shows that he was only being paid a third of the profits for, but it was clearly a breach of contract. Leadbelly was furious, and he immediately either wired or wrote to John Lomax demanding his money. John took whatever that message was, it's now lost to time, and perceived it as a threat. John then wired the sheriff of Shreveport and said Huddy had threatened his life. Huddy then hired a lawyer, which is totally understandable. The lawyer wrote Lomax, stating that not only was Huddy entitled to his money, but that it should have been paid to him on the spot after each performance. In the end, Huddy was given the $150 at once in full. He even had the lawyer check with ARC Records to make sure John wasn't withholding money from royalties. The records had not sold well, so there was no royalty money coming in anyway. Martha went back to work washing clothes. We don't have a solid idea about the jobs, if any, Huddy took while they were in Shreveport, but it seems that the $298 by this time had run out. Huddy and Martha moved to Dallas, moving in with Huddy's sister, Australia, who was now in her 40s. Huddy did not find Dallas any more profitable than Shreveport, and he and Martha were in great need of money. Huddy hired a second lawyer, one that claimed Huddy had not given consent for John to write the biography for Macmillan about his life, and stated Huddy wanted a share of the profits from the short film they had made. Lomax didn't have much to do with the film. In fact, he was still waiting for payment for it. But Macmillan was very concerned about a possible lawsuit over the book John was writing about Huddy. They told Lomax that if he didn't make amends with Huddy, they would consider holding off on publishing his book. It was then that John Lomax decided to extend an olive branch, if only to preserve his publication possibilities. He sent Huddy a letter with a check. The check was probably a sum for whatever the film was supposed to bring in. In response, Huddy also wrote a letter, one free of any animosity. In it, he told John he was willing to work together again, that he had some new songs and wanted to book another trip. This probably came from Huddy's inability to find work or gigs on his own that paid well. John had been problematic, for sure, but he had also been able to find Leadbelly work, work that had now run dry. Two weeks later, he had Martha write a letter for him to John saying he would be willing to sell his portion of the ARC contract to him. John did not respond. Desperate now, Huddy hired a third lawyer. This one explained to him the contents of the contract that he had signed with Lomax. Huddy claimed he never would have agreed to such a huge split of his earnings had he understood what he was signing, and he now demanded two-thirds of the original $1,550, which he worked out to be another $661.77. They went back and forth like this for some time, and John eventually hired his own lawyer. It was a bad breakup. There were offers, counteroffers, and in the end, the New York contract was dissolved, John gave Leadbelly a payout of $250, 
Leadbelly gave John the rights to the biography he was still trying to get published, and John walked away with a third of any future ARC royalties. Huddy celebrated his payout by drinking a large amount of gin. While drunk, he, according to his sister's account, started beating Martha, who then defended herself with a razor. She cut him in the stomach, and he received treatment at the hospital, but the cuts were not deep. The couple's issues only grew worse when the $250 ran out. Huddy got a job washing cars for 10 cents a day, not the lifestyle he expected to have after the success and publicity he garnered in New York. Desperate, Huddy wrote to John saying he wanted to work together again, that they could make even more money this time. John's answer was an angry no. After the months of lawsuits and animosity, John was simply done. Huddy wrote him again a week later, and John never replied. Desperate, Huddy hired a new manager, someone to take John's place. This was a man named John Townsend. He was the manager for the service station where Huddy worked, and from what I can tell, had zero experience in the music business. This partnership inevitably failed, and Huddy was on his own once again. But just when things seemed hopeless, he finally got something of a lucky break. Mary Barnacle, the woman who had allowed Huddy and the Lomaxes to live at her summer home, decided to take Huddy under her wing. She liked his music and became a mentor, an unofficial manager of sorts, and introduced him to everyone she knew in the bubbling folk music scene of New York. She also got him work in New York, something he was relieved to have again. I don't have enough time to get into Mary Barnacle's story too much, but she is a truly evocative character, enough so that she may get herself a History Bite episode in the future. Barnacle had not liked the way John had treated Leadbelly. She didn't like the way he had treated his son Alan, either. She was a brilliant professor, and her classes at NYU were some of the most popular on campus. She helped Leadbelly find work, even paid him to play in some of her classes to showcase his folk music. She even bought her own recording machine and recorded dozens of Leadbelly songs. It was at this time that Huddy found himself engaging with music circles that were left-leaning politically. He was lionized by his peers in these circles, much like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, both musicians who would become friends of Huddy's. He was criticized by some for his association with social movements, even accused of being a communist, though his own political leanings seemed to be more middle of the road. The FBI even started a file on him in the 1940s, but he never became a person of interest. He seemed to keep his ideologies to himself most of the time, but he was an adamant supporter of the civil rights movement. His entire life, he'd experienced firsthand the grim realities of racism, segregation, and Jim Crow. In 1936, John Lomax's new book, called Negro Folk Songs as Sung by Leadbelly, finally came out. Wolf and Lornell called it the first serious full-length portrait of a folk singer in American literature. It detailed some of Huddy's life and many of his songs. Huddy hated it. He was never given any of the money John made off of it, and he didn't like how John had portrayed him. But legally, there was nothing he could do about it. The book did bring him some much-needed publicity, but it also hurt him. 
because Macmillan had now published his songs, which meant they were now owned by Macmillan. After some legal negotiating, Macmillan got to keep the rights to his songs, and he had to ask permission to perform his own songs in public. He had to ask permission to sing his own songs. Can you imagine how frustrating that must have been? Leadbelly felt taken advantage of by the world around him, and he was. His songs and story would always make more money for other people than it would for him. Eventually, Huddy reunited with Alan Lomax, John's son, with whom he had a much better relationship. Alan recorded more of Huddy's songs for the Library of Congress. Thousands of Alan's recordings recently became available online for free, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It was Alan's wish for them to become free and accessible to the public, and they are 10,000% worth checking out. Alan would continue to play a role in Huddy's life, being much more supportive and respectful than his father had been. Alan would even drop out of grad school at Columbia in 1939 in order to help raise money for Huddy, who, once again, found himself in trouble with the law. The exact story is unclear. According to an account by Brownie McGee, one of Huddy's friends, Huddy had stabbed an intruder who was trying to climb through his window at night. Alan said it may have been an unwanted suitor who had been bothering Martha. Whoever he was, Huddy stabbed him 16 times. I don't know how you get stabbed 16 times and don't die, but this guy survived. And whether or not it was self-defense, Huddy was arrested and prosecuted for third-degree assault. Alan traveled out to talk to the man and try to get him to drop the charges, but he refused. Alan Lomax then paid the $1,000 bond for Huddy's release on bail. While out on bond, Huddy was shopping at a small store and accidentally stumbled upon a robbery taking place. A robber was pointing a gun at the store clerk and didn't notice Huddy creeping up behind him. Huddy tackled the robber and held him down until the police arrived. This act of heroism, along with prior reports of good behavior from the prisons where he had served time, were taken into consideration. The judge sentenced him to less than one year in prison, and he ended up serving eight months at Rickers Island Prison in New York. When he was released, he was 52 years old, or 51, different accounts say different things. It was 1940 now, and folk music was booming. Singers like Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Burl Ives, Lee Hayes, and many others all found themselves learning from, partying with, and playing music with Leadbelly. He was a full generation older than they were. He was a legend, and many of the major folk icons of the day looked up to him. He was there when Pete Seeger made his first public debut, and he was there when Woody Guthrie was presented to an Eastern audience for the first time. Guthrie actually stayed with Huddy and Martha from time to time while he was looking for a permanent place to stay. The Ledbetter household in New York was always full. It became a focal point for folk musicians, and many of them met one another for the first time under their roof. Though Leadbelly was popular with the folk crowd, work was still hard to come by, though he always seemed to find an audience eventually. Alan used his connections to book him shows, and sometimes that worked sometimes not. Huddy had his own radio show for a time. 
Every Wednesday night, he got 15 minutes of airtime called Folk Songs of America. He was always on time and always dressed well. He was no longer forced to wear prison stripes when he sang his songs. Now he could play in double-breasted suits and shined shoes. There were no more missed appointments. There was no more showing up intoxicated. Huddy had grown to become a true professional and enjoyed finally being in control of his own presentation. He did more recordings, both commercially and for the Library of Congress. Allen would later comment on his frustration that the Library of Congress did not release public recordings of the songs he and John had recorded with Huddy. He recorded for RCA Victor and Moses Ash, though the money that came in from royalties was again much less than he had hoped for. It was now 1944, and Leadbelly was in his mid-fifties. He had been in New York off and on for a decade. He had not found the success he had expected to and decided to try something new. He looked west and, like so many dreamers before and since, left home bound for Hollywood. Leadbelly saw California as a second chance, a land full of promise. He auditioned for acting roles, but none of them panned out. He recorded with Capitol Records, booked a short-term radio program on LA's Radio KRE. He booked shows and traveled up to San Francisco for several weeks. He ran into some issues there because the local musicians' union would not permit a black man to record with white musicians. He went south to San Diego, hired a new manager, but gigs were still hard to come by. His 1945 income tax return showed an income of only $1,183 for that year. This was below the average income of non-white males at the time, which was around $1,300. That amount was about the same for working white women. For non-white females, the average annual income was about $430. The average income of white males was around $2,400, twice as much as everyone else. Huddy went to Salt Lake City, Utah, acted as his own manager for a time, but still couldn't seem to break through to the big time. After a bad gig in Salt Lake, his acquaintance, a young folklorist and anthropologist, Hector Lee, wrote of him saying, quote, he showed great personal bitterness. The Lomaxes had exploited him, he thought. I had taken advantage of him. Everybody did. Even Hollywood had dealt badly with him." Unquote. Unhappy with the result of his Western adventure and eager to get back to Martha, Huddy returned home to New York. Again, he played whatever shows or house parties he could. He tried his hand at selling the songs he wrote, but no one was buying. He was frustrated that people seemed more excited about his violent past, one he wanted to forget, than about his music. He just couldn't get away from the homicidal harmonizer stereotype, and that seemed to bother him greatly in his later years. The older he got, the more it all seemed to weigh on him. At one point, Martha left him. She was tired of the infidelity and the stress. But she eventually came back, and the two reconciled. He started making decent money on concert circuits. It was a grueling schedule, but Leadbelly kept up with the younger musicians on tour. 
He eventually decided to look overseas and made his way to Paris to play a set of shows in France. It's fascinating to think about how much Leadbelly had seen in his lifetime. He had been born and raised on a rural farm with no electricity, horses the only real mode of transport available to him. Now he was flying over the Atlantic Ocean in an airplane and making his way to Europe. I would love to know what he thought of it all. In Paris, something happened that would change his life. He had been having trouble walking from time to time. He was 60, or 61 now, but the trouble he was having was something more than just the wear and tear of age and a hard life. In France, he saw a doctor who diagnosed him with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. According to the Mayo Clinic, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, is a progressive nervous system disease that affects nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord, causing loss of muscle control. ALS is often called Lou Gehrig's disease after the famous baseball player who was diagnosed with it. Doctors don't usually know why ALS occurs, though it seems some cases are inherited. ALS often begins with muscle twitching and weakness in a limb or slurred speech. For Leadbelly, it began with trouble walking. Eventually, ALS affects control of the muscles needed to move, speak, eat, and breathe. A terrible disease for a musician who found happiness in playing the guitar with his hands, hands he would soon no longer be able to control. Even today, there is no cure. Leadbelly had been given a death sentence. Word spread fast among his friends. The disease progressed rapidly after his diagnosis, but he refused to stop playing shows. Pete Seeger said of it later to Lornell and Wolf, quote, He was deeply ashamed that his strength had left. He didn't want to be seen walking on stage with a cane. He said, Let me walk on stage. I'll sit down. Then you open the curtain for me, okay? After the performance, they closed the curtain on me. Then with pain, he'd get his cane and leave the stage." Leadbelly had always been proud of how strong he'd been while working the fields and farms, breaking wild horses and surviving on the frontier. A disease that took that strength from him must have been emotionally painful to a degree I can't imagine. In July 1949, only two months after he returned home from Paris and his diagnosis, he was taken to Bellevue Hospital in New York. He was allowed to go home, but he could no longer perform shows. He sang and played his Stella as long as he could, but eventually the ability to play the music he loved left him. The day he realized he would never play the guitar again, he wept. He now had to use a wheelchair, which helped facilitate his breathing. One day, as his doctor moved him over to his bed, he said, Doctor, don't put me in that bed. You put me in that bed, and I'll never get out. He was right. On December 6, 1949, Huddy Ledbetter died in a hospital bed at Bellevue. It was the death of a legend. Like so many artists before him, Leadbelly became much more successful in death than he ever had in life. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, 
and the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame in 2008, yet he is still not a household name. Most of the people I told about this series while I was writing it had never heard of him, but they knew his songs, because they knew Nirvana, or Elvis, or CCR, or any number of others who continued singing his songs. Without him and countless others like him who have fallen under the radar, music would not be what it is today. He had a hard life. Sometimes he himself made it hard. He was not a nice guy for much of his life. But there were people who loved him, people who admired him, and there was more to his life than violence and anger and bad choices. There was music and hope in learning, loving, trying, failing, rejection, and heart, all experienced in a world designed to knock him down whenever it could. His music, his legend, the good and the bad, lives on. This was such a long and intense series, and I thank you for sticking with me through it and taking the time to hear Leadbelly's story. I hope I did it justice. It was a pleasure to share it along with some truly amazing music along the way. I promise to play you something at the end of every episode, and this time I'll be playing you Leadbelly's Good Morning Blues. In it, he explains what the blues is, and it's one of the best explanations you'll ever hear. I'll be back in three weeks with another episode for you. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music was licensed through Audio Jungle, the background music in part one was licensed through Envato Elements, and the background music in episodes 2 through 5 was performed and recorded by me and inspired by Leadbelly. A huge thank you to Smithsonian Folkways for allowing me to play some of Leadbelly's recordings in this series. Access to his music is something he and the Lomaxes who recorded it had intended, and I'm grateful that Smithsonian Folkways has honored those intentions. It has helped bring his story and his music to a public and freely accessible educational platform. You can help support this show at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. All support matters for an independent podcast like this one. Subscribing, reviewing, following, listening, all of it matters. Thank you for all you do and all you have done. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, my dear wandering stars of podcast land, go make some history. Now, here is Leadbelly singing for you, Good Morning Blues. Now, this is the blues. That was a white man had the blues. There nothing to worry about. Now, you lay down at night. You roll from one side of the bed to the other all night long. You can't sleep. What's the matter? The blues has got you. You get up and sit on the side of your bed in the morning. You may have a sister and a brother, mother and father around, but you don't want no talk out of them. What's the matter? The blues got you. Well, you go and put your feet under the table, look down in your plate, got everything you want to eat. But you shake your head, you get up, you say, Lord, I can't eat and I can't sleep. What's the matter? The blues got you. want to talk to you. Tell what you got to tell them. Good morning.